Hey, y'all, it's Eric. And Brittany. And today we want to share with you something really important. In 2017, hip-hop and podcasting lost a true icon, Combat Jack. Combat, or Reggie as we knew him, had a personality and a presence that was truly larger than life. He was one of the first entertainment lawyers to represent hip-hop artists. And as hip-hop rose to new heights, Reggie did too. After leaving entertainment law, Reggie got into podcasting in a major way. He created and hosted the Combat Jack show for seven years, interviewing some of the biggest and most influential names in hip-hop. He also helped create and hosted the first season of the documentary podcast Mogul here at Gimlet. It's during this time that we really got to know Reggie as a friend, colleague, and mentor. And we weren't the only ones. Through his role as co-founder of the podcast network Loudspeakers, he became known as a true champion of Black podcasts. He took time out for nearly anyone who would ask him for it. Mm -hmm. Reggie passed away after a battle with colon cancer in December of 2017. Today, we are happy to share with you a very special episode of Mogul. It's a look back at Reggie's life and his contributions to hip-hop and the world of podcasting. It's narrated by the new host of Mogul, hip-hop journalist and commentator Brandon Jenkins. Their new season premieres September 18th. So, without further ado, we present Mogul, the life and times of Reggie Osei. Reggie, you're truly missed. From Spotify and Gimlet Media, this is Mogul, a show about hip-hop's most iconic moments told by the people who lived them. Mogul's coming back with a new season in the fall. But before we get there, we need to do something. We have to say goodbye to someone who is really special to us. If you listen to Mogul, you know that the first season of the show was hosted by Reggie Osei, a.k.a. Combat Jack. A couple of months after he finished working on Mogul, Reggie was diagnosed with colon cancer. He passed away in December of 2017. Everyone who worked on the show misses him. He was a colleague. He was a friend. And he was a hip-hop pioneer in his own right. I'm here today to tell you his story. My name is Brandon Jenkins. I'm a hip-hop journalist, and I knew Reggie. He's someone I admired, someone I respected, and in a lot of ways, someone I wanted to be like. This is a special episode of Mogul, dedicated to the life and career of Reggie Osei. It's a true hip-hop story, from the beginning to the end. I just lay down and yeah, yeah, of course. so this yeah. is like you're my therapist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like this. I want to work like this. This is the voice of Reggie Osei. He's talking to Mogul's senior producer, Matt Nelson. After Reggie got sick, Matt went to record with him. Reggie wanted to tell his story one last time. Brooklyn, New York. Was born in 1964. Crown Heights. First-generation American, a single parent. Both my parents are Haitian. New York, to me, consisted of my block. Around this time, what, what are you doing for fun? What are the hobbies of the young Reggie Osei? Young Reggie Osei was, you know, my first love was comic books and drawing. So I would draw all day. And he would have kept on drawing if it wasn't for one afternoon when Reggie was 15. That day, everything changed. Because Reggie heard hip-hop music for the first time, and it blew his mind. My friend Frank Ford. Frank had a DJ set, and we would play, like, a chic, a contemporary disco and funk and soul records at the time. Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind & Fire. You know, the jams. Before the hip-hop part jams, you know? Yeah. And then everything changed in um, 1979. What happened then? Frank got introduced to hip hop. And he would come back and he would try to explain to me, you gotta hear this rap, man. You gotta hear this rap music. 
If I just remember this one Friday afternoon. Summer. 1979, he comes home. And we're all on his stoop. He has his boom box. He puts this tape in. And it's Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five doing their routine, a live routine, and I just lose my shit. It was a party night, everybody was breaking, the highs was screaming and the bass was shaking, and it won't be long till everybody knowing that flash was on the beatbox, going that flash was on the beatbox, going that flash was on the beatbox, going. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And at that moment, I knew that was going to be my second love. They sounded older, but they were rapping to us. They weren't the Michael Jacksons or the Sheiks singing about finding love in discotheques that we weren't allowed to go to. They were talking about street shit that we understood. In all the ladies' dreams. And I'm cowboy to make you jump for joy. I'm Creole, solid gold. And it was just, it was intoxicating, man. It was like, it was like taking a first hit of crack or, you know, having your first kiss. It was, it was love, love at first sound. Yeah. You, you're smiling. You like, you, you light up when you think about the first time you heard hip hop. I mean, you light up when you think about your first kiss. It's like, how do you, how do you not smile when you think of your first kiss? You know, do you think of your first kiss and everything was perfect? And, you know, you hadn't gone through the nightmares of like heartbreak and breakup and divorce. Yeah. You know, it's the first kiss, it's magical. And your life will never be the same. My life, I would say, would never be the same. Reggie was part of the first generation to grow up hip-hop. He'd sneak out his bedroom window at night and break curfew to go to park jams. He'd swap cassettes with his friends at school. And he'd hop in neighborhood ciphers to spit his best freestyles. In 1982, Reggie was headed off to college as a fully-fledged b-boy. You know, rocking a Kangol hat and shell to Adidas, with LL Cool J bumping from his Walkman. Reggie started out as a fine arts major. And that seemed like a good fit for a kid who loved comic books. But one break during his freshman year, Reggie made a discovery that would take him in an entirely different direction. One that would lead him towards a career that focused on his other love, hip-hop. He was hanging out with me at my house. And um, I don't know exactly how it happened, but, you know. This is Fritz Celestin, Reggie's cousin. There's always mail at my house, you know, in the Haitian house, everything's on the table. <laughs> it's on the table. And I think Bob had some stuff there. And Bob is Fritz's elder brother. He was an entertainment attorney for Arista Records, one of the music industry's biggest labels at the time. And so his pay stubs were on the table. And Reggie's like, What's, who's making all this money? I was like, that's Bob. He's like, what? And I so happened to mistakenly see what his paycheck was. And I was like, fuck it, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a lawyer, like... Fuck everything else. So, Reggie ditched the art thing and changed course to become a lawyer. After he graduated from Cornell, he enrolled at Georgetown Law. And in 1991, he passed the bar. And shortly after that, Reggie got his first law gig, a job working under veteran attorney Louise West. Louise was one of the first prominent black female attorneys, and she worked with some of the biggest players in the music industry. Um, Louise is a feisty woman from D.C. who chain smokes to this day in her office. She doesn't give a fuck about what the laws are. And I just remember being in her office and just getting a headache from just all that chain smoking, but just amazed at how this sole practitioner had so many connections with the top executives. Well, here I am. It's me. That's Louise West. (laughs) I'm here. Now, are you going to ask me questions that I will respond to? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When Louise first met Reggie, he was in his mid-20s. She was looking for a new associate, and he applied for the position. This, you know, guy with this dazzling personality shows up in a suit and a briefcase, and we have a kind of very formal interview that went very well. 
So I was like, well, I'm going to interview a few people. I'll call you later. Then later that evening, I went to some club. Who do I run into but Reggie, (laughs) who's all decked out in his total B-boy look? And I laughed. I said, oh, so I was really interviewing a a B-boy in disguise today. And we just laughed. And, you know, he had a great personality. So I hired him. But Reggie brought more to the table than just a big smile. Luis was starting to attract more and more hip-hop clients. And she knew she needed attorneys who understood the culture. And that was Reggie to a T. Let's say we're discussing clearing a sample. And in the middle of the discussion, he could recite all of the lyrics to hundreds and thousands of hip-hop songs, which I I just thought was remarkable. I'm like, you remember that? How old were you? He says, oh, I've just been listening to hip-hop all my life, you know? Reggie worked with Louise for five years. But by the mid-90s, he could see that hip-hop had come a long way since he first heard Grandmaster Flash on the stoop. So Reggie decided to set up his own firm, a firm that would specialize in representing hip-hop artists. He went into business with a guy named Ed Woods. Like Reggie, Ed cut his teeth working for Luis West. And most importantly, he loved hip-hop. Together, they formed Osei and Woods, and they set out to make a name for themselves as the hip-hop lawyers. The first thing they had to do was build up their roster of clients. One of the first calls they made was to this guy. I am Brooklyn's finest, the New York Giant God's favorite DJ, Clark Kent. Clark was and still is a respected DJ and producer. He would bring credibility and connections. Exactly the kind of person Ed and Reggie needed to sign to Osan Woods. Reggie was like, yo, me and Ed are starting our own firm. And, um, you know, if you want to. And I was the first person to say yes. Like the first. So I was their first client. I was their first... Um, what do you call it? Uh, retainer. <laughs> I was there for, so I was helping pay some some uh, some bills. <laughs> Around what what year was this? Shit, I can't remember that. It was 1996. Clark went with Ed and Reggie because they didn't seem like the stereotypical lawyers. They were young, they were cool, and they loved to party. Like these guys were of it. Like you would look at Reggie on a Friday night at a club and be like, "That is not a lawyer." Why is he with the glass of champagne with all of it? Nah, that ain't that nah, that's my lawyer, B. That's that's my lawyer. Yeah, he's he's as cool as us. Yes. Ed and Reggie were on the come up, and people were starting to notice. After they'd been in business for a while, a local TV station did a feature on the young hip hop lawyers. I'm Reggie Osei. My name is Ed Woods. We represent all sorts of characters that are involved in the music industry. Anything that needs to be put into writing, we do it. In the footage, you see Ed and Reggie going through a typical day. They visit the Bad Boy Entertainment offices, check in with DJ Clark Kent, and drop in on a Heavy D recording session. Yeah, we're headed to um, Daddy's House Recording Studios. This is where all the juices flow. Ed and Reggie are in suits. You know, like the 90s ones with the huge shoulder pads. In between meetings, they pull out clunky cell phones and make some calls. They look busy. They look like they're on their grind. It's like from the moment you walk out your door in the morning into the street, the, the, the hustle starts at that point. As the hip-hop lawyers began to make a name for themselves, their client list got longer. Business started building up. It took some time, but then kind of it just started steamrolling from there. That's Gwen Niles. Gwen was married to Ed Woods. She remembers the Osain Woods roster getting stacked with more and more names. Clark Kent. Shit, Malik Yoba, Kelly Price, was there Chico DeBarge. This is James McMillan. He worked with Ed and Reggie back in the day. Dida Angeletti. They from Osain Woods. I keep going, Ski. Brucey e. B. Um, there's all kinds of cats, like the Hitman producers. Those are the guys that made the beats for Puffy's Bad Boy recording label. One Hitman walked in. And then another hitman walked in, and then another hitman walked in. And there were a few other guys that Osain would scooped up. You might have heard of them. Dame Dash? 
I could fuck it, Dame Dash, Jay-Z. They came through that. Yeah. Ed and Reggie worked with Dame and Jay. And they'll pop up in this story later, but for now, let's stick with Reggie. I still think it wasn't anything that was planned. It wasn't anything that we strategized. It was something that was very organic because we were servicing our peers, these young black kids, you know, from similar backgrounds who, you know, happened to have some talent or some ambition. And they wanted to talk to people that understood the culture, that looked like them, that dressed like them. And I can tell at the time that the more established firms at the time weren't really happy. Because how do you counter something that you're not expecting? Business was good. Really good. Osei and Woods upgraded their first tiny office from two desks to a much bigger, more swagged-out spot opposite Grand Central Station. And it wasn't just the office that was swagged out. Ed and Reggie were, too. After one big deal, they went out and bought Rolexes. Ed and Reggie were part of the new black elite, a wave of entrepreneurs who knew that hip-hop wasn't a fad, that it was here to stay. And after betting on themselves and the music, it was paying off. Big time. These guys were like young black masters of the universe. Ima- imagine all the, you know, all the movies we see in the 80s of the young stock traders, right? They have more money they can do it. They, have, they can buy all the toys. They can do all the things. So imagine that flipped, but this is like urban entertainment and it's lawyers. This is what it was. This is Naima Cochran. Today, she's a music and culture writer. Back in the day, she was Ed and Reggie's office assistant. Naima remembers the peak of Osain Woods as a period of seemingly limitless opportunity. The world is at your feet, and hip-hop was still breaking open. You know, we were still seeing the heights of where it could reach, and it was still surprising us. So it was just kind of like anything is possible. There was, we just had like the audacity of, of hope and dreams because we had not seen any limits yet. Ed and Reggie were at the top of their game during the golden era of hip-hop, and they were rubbing shoulders with some of the biggest superstars in the industry, including this guy. What's up? My name is Puff Daddy. This is my new artist, the Notorious B.I.G. In the late 90s, Puffy was at his peak. He was this sort of hip-hop great Gatsby. He was throwing the dopest parties, cranking out some of hip-hop's biggest anthems, and he was making a lot of money. We banging, baby. We making music strictly for the streets, and it's all good. Ed and Reggie handled the contracts for a lot of Puffy's main producers, and they partied together at a club he owned. So they knew Puffy pretty well. So well that he once loaned them the keys to his crib in the Hamptons. P. Diddy at the time, Puffy at the time, let us have his house in the Hamptons for a weekend. This is Reggie's wife, Akim Osei. And here's Ed Wood's wife, Gwen Niles, again. And we had a blast. You know, it's just the the boys, you know, just spending spending money, swimming in the pool, you know, cook for us. It's this big white house, and you walk in and you just see glass and white. How much white? This much white. The upholstery was absolutely white. Upstairs in, like, the bedrooms, there were white shag carpets. The floors downstairs were white floors. So, yes, it it was. I mean, you were very conscious of every step. And so it was kind of funny because we brought kids as well. At this point in his life, Reggie and Akim had two young kids. Reggie brought them both to Puffy's crib. And Puff called and said, wait a minute. Brought kids? You're not supposed to have kids. My place is all white. It was just really amazing. Like that sticks out in my head. It was su- it was such a good weekend. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I didn't know Reggie back then, but I can imagine that anyone on the outside looking in would say, "Shit, this guy's got it made. He's built a successful business. He's partying with hip hop royalty. He's got the keys to Puffy's crib. This dude is killing it." Seems kind of perfect, doesn't it? The kid from Crown Heights living a champagne lifestyle and making money with the music he loved? But that image doesn't match reality. Because Reggie's time at Osain Woods didn't solely consist of parties and trips to the Hamptons. It took a lot of work to get where they were at. When you start to climb the ladder, take on bigger artists, stakes get higher. And as the wins get bigger, so do the losses. 
like the catastrophe of losing a major artist. And it was after one of those L's that Reggie started to wonder, is this shit really for me? I think one of the, 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 the seed that was planted is when I lost my biggest client, like really lost my biggest client. And, and it was a very public loss. Can, can you explain a little bit more about what, what happened? Um, client, I don't want to name him, you know, because he's going to make, make headlines. But he's, he's somebody astronomically. It's Jay-Z. I lost Jay-Z as a client. Right. Um, I lost Jay-Z as a client. Okay. Reggie met Jay-Z years before he became a megastar. This was back in the mid-90s when Jay was just some unknown rapper from Marcy Projects. And Jay was working with an unknown manager, a skinny kid from Harlem with a big mouth, a guy named Dame Dash. No one would give Jay a deal. So Dame and Jay decided to form their own label, Rockefeller Records. Jay-Z was the least likely to succeed in this school of, you know, rappers and, and MCs and hip-hop artists. And we had done a deal where their label really had no leverage to get the, the terms that Jay-Z and his crew wanted, that Damon Dash particularly. We couldn't get Damon Jay to talk to us about what happened next, but here's Reggie's explanation of how the deal went south. Damon Jay-Z signed a distribution deal with two bigger labels, Freeze Records and Priority Records. They would put out Jay's debut album, Reasonable Doubt. Dame wanted him and Jay to get a gross share of the royalties. For a new artist, that's sort of unheard of, because artists usually just get a net share of the profits. But Dame Dash is not the kind of guy to follow convention. He wants the biggest share and the biggest check he can get. Here's Reggie again. We didn't get those terms. You know, as a small label with somebody that they're taking a chance on, you, you can't really negotiate that. And then when Jay-Z's first album, Reasonable Doubt, became a success. Success? That's a bit of an understatement. The debut album sold over 400,000 copies in its first year. And when the money started to roll in, the difference between net and gross became a big issue. I got left holding the bag. I got blamed for the deal. Damon Jay-Z fired Reggie and left Osean Woods. To rub salt in the wound, Jay's next album, In My Lifetime Volume 1, it went platinum. Initially, I was like, well, this guy's not going to make it anyway. Like, he's flashing the pan. And so for like a good two or three years, it's just like, fuck, this guy's getting bigger. Like, when are they going to go away? You know? Well, they're not going to go away. Because by the end of the 90s, Jay had cemented himself as hip-hop's biggest star. And he and Dame Dash built Rockefeller Records into one of the music industry's most iconic labels. So... You know, after working with Jay-Z and that team for three, four years, like just being loyal to the guy that nobody wanted to sign, like knocking on every label's door. So going from that to like, oh, shit, this guy's going to become the best fucking rapper on the planet, and you lose that, it's, it's such a blow, dude, to your ego, to your confidence. Like, you get, I, I got gunshots. It's like, what other client am I going to lose? So that fucked me up, man, you know? Tell me more about how you felt after that. Are we talking oh, like dep- you, I felt depressed? I felt depressed. I like felt you like you can't get a bed. Or? Uh, not. It wasn't that heavy as much as is this something I want to do? And that's when the, the that's when the weight or the darkness starts creeping in. It's like, is this something that I want to subject subject myself to again? And it did happen, time and time again. In fact, it's kind of an occupational hazard when you're an entertainment attorney. Sometimes there's a disagreement over a contract, like with Damon Jay. But sometimes it's as simple as this. Artists get bigger, they get more popular, and they move on to bigger firms. And the lawyers who worked at these firms, they tend to be white. Here's James McMillan. He worked at Osain Woods back in the day. I remember having long conversations with Ed and Reggie about, you know, yo, they just fucking with the white boys, they, they, you know. Um, they just want to, you know, they think the white man's ice is colder than ours. And you're like, you know, listen, man, we all went to the same school. We passed the same bar. And I know that that dude is a bum. He missed these five points on your deal. You know, listen, you know, that disloyalty can be very sharp, right? And very painful to, to digest. As time went on, Reggie got more and more disillusioned with his life as a hip-hop lawyer. It began to wear him down. 
and the people closest to him, they could see it. This is Max Osei, Reggie's brother. He, you know, he he would tell me that, you know, like I'm I'm in this room with these these motherfuckers who are worth millions of dollars, and I'm more talented. You know, it's like I'm smarter than them, I'm more talented than them, and like they're treating me like shit. You know, like I, I got somebody who does my dry cleaning, I got somebody who like cleans up my apartment, I got somebody who does my law, who does my pa- my papers. This shit would get fixed sometimes. Reggie spoke to mogul producer Matt Nelson about just how miserable he was practicing law. Um, so I can tell you honestly, Matt, not that I was suicidal in the music industry, but there were days that I would just wake up and just walk from my home to the train station praying that the piano would drop or the bus would veer off and just fucking take me out of that pain. It was unbearable. Reggie had been in the law game for over 10 years. Along the way, he'd had a lot of success. He also had responsibilities. Reggie had a family to support and bills to pay. But despite all that, Reggie knew that he couldn't go on any longer. Something inside him told him he had to get out. So he decided to quit law and dissolve Osane Woods. What was, was there like a sort of moment where you, you know, you pull the shutters down and you lock up the shop and you walk away and that, and that, something that happened? December 31st, 2003. And just winding everything down and, you know, taking everything home and, you know, storing in my files and in my mother's basement and um, saying I'm done. I'm just going out with the festivities of, you know, New Year's Eve. And um, waking up, my, my, my wife had just had our third son. And I remember peaceful sleep, opening my eyes. It's January 1st, 2004, and it's like, what the fuck did you just do? What the fuck did you just do? I bet a lot of people asked him that question. And they probably had another one for him, too. The fuck are you going to do now? After the break, a change of name and a change of career. We welcome to the Combat Jack Show, the G-O-A-T, Mr. James Todd Smith, LL Cool J. What up, what up? Yo, what's up, sir? Welcome to the Combat Jack Show. Thank you, man. When Reggie bounced from Osean Woods, he didn't really plan what would come next. And other than practice law, he'd never really done anything else. But what he did have was stories. Lots of stories. Like the time he saw Puffy beat the shit out of a guy with a 90 cell phone the size of a shoe. Or the one about Pete Rock getting knocked out at a barbecue. Or the time he saw Tragedy Gaddafi pissing in an ice bucket inside the VIP section of a club. Reggie had a ton of entry stories like that. And because this was the mid-2000s, Reggie now had a place to put him. He started to write a blog. See, this was pre-Twitter pre-Instagram, pre-your auntie having a Facebook. Back then, blogging was the hot new trend, and Reggie jumped on it. He started dropping these wild industry stories under the pen name Combat Jack. To give you a sense of what Reggie's blog was like, we're going to recreate one of his posts with the help of a special guest. Cool. My name is Chumo Say. I'm Reggie's son, and I'm going to be reading the part of Combat Jack. Chumo is Reggie's eldest. He's 21, and he's an up-and-coming rapper. And it's kind of uncanny just how much he looks like Reggie. The blog post you're about to hear is called The Time I Smoked a Blunt with Tupac. Sorta. So the year is 1992. Back then, Reggie was still in the music business. And he's representing a new group called Ground Zero. Who were supposed to be like the East Coast version of NWA. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I feel like he would do. (laughs) (laughs) The group are managed by this cat named Easy Lee. And he was a real character. Easy was one of those pretty boy type of cats who was actually really grimy. So much so that you wouldn't trust him near your cash, your girl, your moms, your kids, your CDs, your clothes. You flat out couldn't trust this fucker. I wonder why he didn't just call himself Greasy Lee. One night, Reggie, Ground Zero, and Greasy Lee go to a Tupac concert. 
At the end of the night, the crew links up for an after party, and Greasy starts to tell this story. He says that during the concert, he got backstage, and that while he was backstage, he started going for his by grabbing all types of shit, other people's belongings and stuff, until he came upon this black leather Pele Pele jacket with an image of a black stallion embroidered on the back. He takes it out and shows us all the coat, and I'm like, yo, man, that's really fucked up. I don't get down like that. But um, what's in the pockets? He goes all up in the pockets and produces a wallet containing none other than Tupac Shakur's driver's license. That's right. This dude Greasy Lee had stolen Pac's jacket. Lee continues going through the pockets and... He produces the largest, most beautifulest effing bag of chronic weed I have ever seen in my life. So, they light up. And there they were. Smoking Tupac's weed. I don't know what Greasy ended up doing with the jacket and Pac's license. I just don't fuck with cats like that anymore. I just hope that this incident didn't trigger that crazy-ass nigga Tupac to go off the deep end, resulting in him hating Big, Puffy, and just about anything else East Coast-related. Good looking out, Pac. Thug life and all that, my nigga. R.I.P. That was good. That was really good. (laughs) Thanks. Stories like this made Reggie's post stand out. Most bloggers were fans sharing their opinions from their bedrooms. And that's cool. But Reggie was different. He had actually been in the room when some of hip-hop's most iconic moments played out. He was the weblog star. Reg was the star. Because the, the industry stories that he told were so deep, were so personal and, and detailed. And, and they opened up a side of the industry that no one had ever heard of or experienced before. That's Dallas Penn. He was a popular blogger as well. Dallas might have considered Reggie a star, but for a long time, he had no idea who he was. As far as Dallas knew, Combat Jack was just a screen name. And that was intentional. Reggie still had a lot of connections in the music industry. And he knew some of these stories would piss people off. But as his post racked up more and more views, Reggie couldn't resist the urge to tell some people who he really was. My introduction to Reggie, my first meeting with Reggie, is in a little uh, uh, nightclub, not even a nightclub, a little bar, uh, Belmont Lounge. And I'm inside this spot, and it's like, um, it's right next to Irving Plaza on East 15th Street. And um, my man's spinning in there, and, and dude is like, yo, I know you. And I'm like, nah, bro, nah, brother, you don't know me. Nah. He's like, nah, I know you, man. And I'm like, brother, good to meet you. Nah, you don't know me. So you're Dallas Penn. And I said, oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I am Dallas Penn. He said, yo, I'm Combat Jack. He said it to me kind of like, you know, like on some like, like James Bond spy shit. <laughs> and I was like, oh, snap, get out of here. I mean, you know, Combat Jack, I love your writing. Your stories are incredible. You are dope, man. It's dope to meet you. And he's like, yeah, man, yeah, I mean, I, I F with you heavy. Reggie had no idea at the time, but this encounter with Dow's pen, it would change his life. For real. Look, I know that whenever someone says something changes someone's life, you sort of roll your eyes and shrug and assume it's just bullshit to make a story better. But I am sincere when I say that at this point in the story, Reggie's life is about to change. Because he was about to find a new way to tell hip-hop stories and reach even more people. In 2009... Dallas was invited to host his own internet radio show, and he brought Reggie along to the kickoff meeting. And Reggie saw the potential to do something that had never been done before. The idea was to create a kind of hip-hop version of the Howard Stern Show. He and Dallas would get together and talk news, current events, and they'd interview people from hip-hop. The Combat Jack Show was born. To the Combat Jack radio show, featuring me, yours truly, Combat Jack. How y'all feeling out there, internet? Yeah, man, it's going to be a real special evening, man, you know. When the show first started, it revolved around the personalities of Reggie and Dallas. But as they started to find their groove, they wanted to create a cast of characters, their very own whack pack. Here to talk us through those characters, we have the show's original producer, A. King, Dallas Penn, and this guy, Premium Pete. Check, 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 check. Okay, now I got it, I got it. 
Can you go through the cast of characters on the Combat Jack show? Like, who was a part of the show? Kind of like name and then who they were. Or name and then here's a one-liner. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, hold on for this. All right, so let's go over. Let's try to start in order. I guess we start with Combat. He's the talent. He's the, the par father. He's the it guy. Dallas Penn, a smart, crazy motherfucker. The fly old head. Ben Amin. Ben Hameen was the DJ. Just Blaze, the cheat code. You know, he's another one, man. He walks in the room and all eyes on Just. And then there's me. Um, um, Premier Pete is the firecracker. Italian. Everything that comes out of his mouth is crazy, you know. You have Matt Raz. And this may not be a one-liner, but I feel like Matt Raz, you know, he came to the Combat Jack show uh, on like a fucking, it looked like a 10-speed woman's bike. I was like, yo, we got to bring Matt Raz back. One, Matt Raz is a white dude. And Matt Raz has white boy weed. And if anybody knows what white boy weed is, you already know the value. Like black dudes, yeah, black dudes, whatever. But you get a good white boy with white boy weed, you're good. None of that, none of that wild plastic shit. You know, that shit that finishes with the, with the plastic smell? That's black dudes think they're getting fucked up. No, man, you're smoking plastic, bro. Get you a white boy. You know, and um... And I'm missing somebody. Who, who am I missing? And then, and then, oh, myself. Uh, so, um... But hey, King, um, I'll call him uh, a visionary, if that means anything. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah I'll take it. I started listening to Combat Jack around 2013, and by then it wasn't an internet radio show anymore. It was a podcast. I remember listening to it at work and thinking, damn, this is packed with so much knowledge and game that I kind of feel smarter just for listening. Other times, I'd be damn near in tears from laughing at these guys talking shit to each other. I like the shirt. I imagine it could be Bondulu. It's mm-hmm. not Bondulu. But I like it. I like no, the fuck y'all for saying, I, for even <laughs> intimating that I got some Bondulu polo on me. I mean, listen. What? Not, what? You, you never had Bondulu polo? Yo, man, this is not Bondulu. I could have. I you want to you come and check the tags? I'm not. I'm you want to come I'm and not, check not, the tags? I'm, I'm trying to it? tell you Yo, that I like, the, I like the colorway on the shirt. Internet. Let, let me do a quick check right now. Dallas is checking a tag on Combat Jack's shirt. But the show had depth, too. And Reggie's skills as an interviewer were getting sharper. He was able to get people from hip-hop to open up in a way you didn't hear anywhere else. Here's the Combat Jack Show's executive producer, Chris Morrow. Well, in a lot of the other hip-hop shows, uh, the intense energy has always come from beefs, from confrontations, people talking about each other, people storming out of the room during interviews. That was never Reggie's intention. Reggie was always trying to create a space where people could really open up and be transparent in a way that they haven't been before. I think really one of the best examples of that is the interview he did with D-Nice from Boogie Down Productions. In that episode, D-Nice tells a story about how a beef he got into in the Bronx resulted in the death of his mentor, Scott LaRock. To me, the first important cat that died in rap was Scott. Was Scott LaRock. So you want the story? Yeah. So... They're shooting at us. I see Scott swerving, you know what I'm saying? And then I look, and I can literally see the blood coming out of his head. Damn. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, it's just crazy. Um, And, you know, and it just freaked me out because it's like bullets had to go past, had to go past us to hit Scott. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and, uh, yeah, sorry, man. I get a little emotional thinking about this. You know what I mean? Because it's... It's the dude who uh, introduced me to everything that I do right Change now. Change your life. Yeah, I don't even talk about this much, right. but uh, yeah, seeing that was was crazy, you know, and knowing that it was over nothing, right? You know, and and uh, yeah, it was it was it was crazy. It was crazy. Pardon me, bro. Pardon. Nah, nah. Yeah. That D Nice episode dropped in 2014, and the Combat Jack show continued to grow and gain momentum. That year, Complex made a TV adaptation of the show, and more and more people were tuning in. Combat Jack was really making a name for itself, even if no one really knew what the name meant. Do you know where he got his name from when he became Combat Jack? Yeah, it was from, uh, fuck, man. 
God, how could I not remember? It was about um, a dude, some military figure, and it was, I don't even know if I should be saying this. It was like very suggestive. I'm sure Dallas gives you the, the nitty on that. Before the soldiers go out into the field, uh, what they do is they go and they, they pull their manhood. You know, they pull their manhood to release. Whereas if, if you still got, if you still holding that, you know, that man juice, you know, you're too wired to really be a good, effective soldier. So that was the purpose of the combat jack. For the record, the name comes from the book Generation Kill. And yes, it does describe soldiers masturbating during combat. But I guess the origins of the name don't really matter that much. You know, combat jack, that should sound good. And I remember people, you know, coming to sit down like, yeah, yeah, combat jack. Yeah, I'm on the combat jack show. And, you know, even like Ice-T, I remember like he did a drop and we used it in the beginning of the episode that we did with him. He's like, he's like, hey, yo, man, the fuck up. This is Iceberg, bitch. You're listening to the combat jack show. Get a, a helmet. helmet. And then that, that when that intro dropped, man, I mean, honestly, I still to this day get goosebumps. Get ready for combat. Also has that horn too. Man, listen, hip hop is two things. The drum and the motherfucking horn. I mean the horn is the 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 herald. Like that that crazy air horn, like, oh, man. I mean, anyone that that recognizes that song, I really, I, I appreciate them. Over the years, Reggie chopped it up with some of hip hop's biggest icons, legends like these. What's up, y'all? This is J. Cole. We welcome Ray Kwan to speak on 20 years of the Wu-Tang Dynasty. Fat Joe. What's Jesus up, sir? Christ, what's K-O-A-Y. up, my brother, man? Yo, DJ Cut Killer, <laughs> a.k.a. Red Man. Ms. Cardi B. Yeah. Let's get, let's get. Ice Q. Yeah, yeah. What's happening, y'all? What's up, Q? Yo, what's the deal, baby? This is your boy, Uncle Luke. We got Scarface in the building. Mr. Rizza. Stevie J in hey, the building. Warren G. We welcome to the Combat Jack Show, the G-O-A-T. Mr. James Todd Smith, LL Cool J. Yeah. What up? What up? Reggie Osei was a godfather of the, the hip-hop podcast game. Combat Jack was the first in that space, period. This is Charlemagne the God. Peace to the planet, uh, Charlemagne the God. Radio personality, TV personality, all that good stuff. For Charlemagne, no one compares to Combat Jack. Because Reggie wasn't an observer or someone reporting on hip-hop culture. No. What made Reggie so effective as an interviewer was the fact that he came from hip-hop. He knew the culture. Like, he goes back to the beginning of the hip-hop culture. So it's just certain things that he would talk about that would resonate with a Russell Simmons, that would resonate with an Ice-T, that would resonate with a Chuck D. And I think that they, that just brings all of them back to the golden era. Those were my favorite interviews with Combat Jack when he would talk to his peers, because that's what they were. They were his peers. And I think they respected that. And they just knew he knew what he was talking about. And they knew that he was a fan of the culture. You know, he was only there to help, you know, keep the culture of hip-hop moving. He was only there to, you know, give those guys platforms, you know, that they may not get anywhere else. Dallas Penn told me that Reggie took the preservation of hip-hop really seriously. He saw it as his duty to make sure that hip-hop stories from the past would never be lost. He's an old comic book collector. You love your comic book. Like, you love this book so much. Man, you get a Mylar plastic bag to preserve it. You get an acid-free backing board to keep the spine straight. Like, that's what he did for hip-hop. He put it inside a Mylar bag with an acid-free backing board so that its spine could stay straight, so that it it could be preserved, so that somebody else could get it, pick it up, open it up, read it, enjoy it and see how it is that it is preserved for other people to enjoy it later. But Reggie wasn't satisfied just having his own show. He wanted to put other people on and help the next generation of podcasters find their voice. In 2013, Reggie and his business partner, Chris Morrow, established the Loudspeakers Network, a podcast network that showcased new Black voices, voices like these. Say hello to the bad guy tax season. So this was the read. Yeah, this was. I am Kid Fury. 
I am Crystal. It's the Brewery Idiots Podcast. Thank you for listening. Peace. In 2014, Reggie turned 50, and it seemed like he'd finally figured everything out. But again, the image doesn't always match the reality. Because those closest to Reggie knew that while his career was going well, the rest of his life was by no means perfect. In 2016, Reggie and his wife, Kim, separated after almost 20 years of marriage. Reggie moved out of the family home and back with his mother in Crown Heights. People told us that after the split, Reggie wasn't around as much. He was less social. But then something flipped. Suddenly, he seemed to be out all the time. When he was going through his stuff with his wife, you know, the drinking was a lot more, you know, the partying. This is Jonathan Mena one of the Combat Jack Show's producers. I think he just didn't know how to, how to unload all that weight on his shoulders. And I think he was very big on therapy. And I know like when we talked, he stopped going to therapy. And I kind of felt like there was a shift in him. Like, not that he didn't care about his life, but he was in a place that wasn't good. Reggie's life changed a lot after his marriage broke down, and he started to reinvent himself as he entered this new phase of his life. Reggie had had tattoos since the 90s. One of them was a dragon that coiled around his bicep and down his forearm. But Reggie never finished it. It was just an outline. Now, he wanted to fill in the colors. It was him, like, becoming what he really wanted. This is Mika Sunga. Mika helped out on the Combat Jack show. With the tattoo, there was a lot of like, oh, you know, I don't have, like, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm too old for that. Like, you know, people were like, oh, you don't need that. You're a grown ass man. You don't need a fucking sleeve at this moment. And like when he did it, he was like, you know what? I'm free. I'm free of all these, these things that people are telling me that I need to do. You know, like I am doing what I want. And I think when he finished it, he was like, yes. And he was so, he was so pleased with it. It looked really fucking dope too. Like it was a dope ass tattoo. So, he was happy. He was really happy. And it was, it was ending a chapter for him. Like, it was like, all right, now I could start this new, new life. And I look, look different and all this. So, you know, he was feeling himself a little bit. <laughs> he was. <laughs> I definitely was feeling himself. Around this time, Reggie started working on a new project. He and Chris Morrow pitched an idea for a documentary series about the rise and tragic fall of hip-hop executive Chris Lighty. That project became the first season of this show. Mogul. Mogul dropped in April of 2017, and people fucked with it. It made a bunch of those year-end lists of the best podcasts, and Reggie was profiled in The New Yorker. In the fall of that year, the team started to plan a second season of the show. But around that time, Reggie started to feel sick. His stomach started hurting a lot. Um, and that was kind of like, you know, so we were trying to figure out, like, oh, why is, why is your stomach hurting? Like, he'd be eating something, and he'd be like, oh, and he couldn't. Like, he couldn't finish eating. And I was like, oh, that's weird. His stomach would just start, it was getting bigger. Like, it was just, and it was really hard. Like, if you pressed it, it was just hard. And I was like, huh. That's Mika Sunga again. By 2017, Mika and Reggie had started dating, so they were spending a lot of time together. Mika says that Reggie wasn't too concerned by the pain initially. He cut back on his drinking, started to eat more healthily. But nothing seemed to work, because the pains were only getting worse. Then one day in early October, the pain was so bad that Reggie had to go to the emergency room. We got to the to the hospital, and they were like they had the, the wheelchair. They had to grab him, rolled him in, and they started doing all the tests. And then you know we were waiting for the results, and you know the nurse comes back. She's like, "So your liver is inflamed." Um, and we're like, "Oh yeah, the liver. Oh, that's that's the that's the problem." Now we and we're like, "Yo, we got this. We got this. This ain't shit." And then she's like, "Yeah, you should you should wait for the doctor to come." And I was like, "Hmm, that seems weird. Okay, all right, that's fine. Yeah, the doctor should talk to you. Okay, your liver. Maybe he's gonna give us some medicine, whatever, whatever." And that turned into like the doctor just being like, "Hey, you have cancer." Um. He was like, you know, your your colon exploded. Uh, you have to go to surgery. And he was like, hmm. He was like, oh, okay. And at that point, I started crying because I was like, oh, my God, this is insane. Um, 
And he, I could never, I'll never forget this. The doctor left. He looked at me and he was like, yo, life comes at you hard. Reggie was rushed into surgery. The doctors removed a big chunk of his large intestine and tried to cut out as much of the cancer as they could. He was told that if he waited any longer to see a doctor, he'd probably already be dead. On October 23rd of 2017, Reggie shared the news of his illness with his audience. The Combat Jack Radio Show. Hey, yo, Internet, this is your man, Combat Jack. Welcome to this very special uh, episode of the Combat Jack Show. Out of seven years, this was the only show that I never showed up to record. And the reason why is because I got hit with some real-life shit. A couple of weeks ago, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. I was rushed to the hospital and had some pretty severe uh, surgery. I'm on, I'm on the men right now, and I'm about to jump on this journey to health um, with chemo. Your boy ain't going nowhere, though. You know, we're going to keep doing this. And keep rocking with us, man. I'll keep you all posted. In the wake of Reggie's announcement, some of the most important people in hip-hop shared their support. And this clip started to circulate around social media. It's a video of Reggie lying on a hospital bed. He's in a blue gown, tube spiraling out of his wrist. He's got his phone on speaker, and a familiar voice booms out. It was LL Cool J. Stay strong, stay encouraged, and, you know, everything will be fine. And, you know, just, just smile and feel good about your life. And, you know, the best is yet to come. And don't don't be discouraged or dismayed or anything. Just feel good. I've been so, I've been so encouraged ever since they told me, man. I never felt no yeah. discouragement. I never felt no type of heaviness. I know it ain't easy. Once I get out the hospital, I know it's not going to be easy. But, you know, I keep everything around me positive. And you calling me and letting me know? Oh, man, thank you, man. This means a whole lot, man. After a couple weeks in the hospital, Reggie was sent home to recuperate. People kept coming out to see him, kept showing love. But the people closest to him started to worry. He didn't seem to be regaining his strength. Here's Premium Pete. One thing about combat is he had, uh, like he, he, he was built guy, you know? He had thick legs. He had like, uh, you know, like, uh, like Samoan legs, you know? And... He really lost all his weight on his legs and, you know, and he was disintegrating as, as, as crazy as that sounds. And, you know, and I, I would come by once a week and visit him. I, I says, what do you want? What, what, what do you want? Like, I, you know, what do you want me to bring? And he's like, uh, yeah, I want uh, miso soup. And I'll never forget, I stopped by, I bought three miso soups and one for me. And we sat there and ate miso soup and... Yeah, he looked at me and he's like, yo, Pete, let me ask you something. Do I, do I look fucked up? I mean, look at me, my legs, they're skinny. Like, yo, I look fucked up out here, right? And I'll be honest with you guys, the first time I ever lied to him, he knew me to always keep it real, too fucking real, too blunt. Too, I challenged him. I, I always did. As much as he challenged me. That was the one time I was like, you look great, man. He's like, nah, man, don't lie to me. I'm like, nah, you look great. Because I couldn't, you know, I, I, I couldn't tell him that. Reggie's condition continued to deteriorate. And after a couple of weeks at home, he was admitted to the hospital again. His eldest sons, Chuma and Chi, and some of the people who were closest to him, came to be by his side. Here's Mika and Reggie's brother, Max. Um, uh, Mika called. And she was like, you need to come back. You need to get back here, like, now. And um, so it was like, I think it was like 2 o'clock in the morning. And um, it's like a vigil, just like watching, watching him. And, and uh, his vitals were getting, like, lower and lower. And it was crazy because earlier in the night, um, like, I remember looking at, like, what his numbers, like, it was like the blood pressure so like the diastolic and systolic numbers and his oxygen levels and um walking around like he was like he was in like a icu and comparing his numbers with other people's and like fuck this is like bad like these are people who look like they're not in good shape and his numbers are much worse and and we sat there um together you know all you know holding his hand you know, talking to him, saying, you know, our last goodbyes. and Three o'clock in the morning, 
we're just like sitting around his bed, just not really talking, just like watching him fade away. And I forget the exact time. I think, you know, just sort of like starting to nod off. And um, like the hospital staff came in and sort of like they, you know, flashed lights in his eyes to see if they would dilate. And um, they didn't. And they called it, and he was. <sighs> it was sad. We, we saw his heart just stop. And that was it. And that was it. In the early hours of December 20th, 2017, Reggio died. He was 53 years old. He survived by his wife, Akim, and his four children, Chuma, Chi, Kai, Kara, and all of the many, many people who loved him. I've thought a lot about Reggie over the past few months. When you take someone's life and try to atomize it and shrink it into an hour, you have to ask yourself, what's really important for us to say about this man? What do he stand for? What does his story mean? I think it's best if I let Reggie have the last word. The Combat Jack show always ended the same way. Reggie repeated this mantra where he told his audience to dream those dreams, then man up and woman up and live those dreams. And when I hear those words, it makes me think that Reggie was someone who was never afraid to do just that. He dreamed those dreams, and then he lived them. So one last time, let's hear those words. So, you know, it'd be only right if we say, Internets, you know what time it is. Dream them dreams, then man up and woman up and live them dreams. Because a life without dreams is black and white. And the universe... Hold on, let me do it again. Fucking guys, man. You fucking got me choked up today, man. But, you know, it don't be only right if we do it like this. Internets, you know what time it is. Dream those dreams, then man up and woman up and live them dreams. Because a life without dreams is black and white. And the universe flows in technicolor and surrounds sound. Wow. Cheer. And that's that, man. F, F your radio. radio. F, F your, your TV, TV show. Combat Jack out, show. Bitches, yeah. Cheer. Luminati! is a production of Spotify and Gimlet Media. This episode is produced by Wallace Mack and Saeed Tijan Thomas with help from Gabby Bogarelli. Our senior producer is Matthew Nelson. Our editors are Lynn Levy, Caitlin Kenny, and Chris Morrow. Sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw. Music direction by Matthew Boll. This episode was scored by Nana Quibana with additional music by Haley Shaw. Our theme song is by Prince Paul and Don Newkirk. Fact-checking by Soraya Shockley. Thank you to everyone who shared their stories with us. This episode was difficult to make, but I know that it was even harder for you all to share your stories with us. We deeply appreciate it. Um, so you mentioned that you mentioned that you rapped a little bit. Yeah. Do you remember remember some of your favorite your favorite lines? I only had one line that I remember. My name was Reggie O. M. C. Reggie O. My rhyme was, I'm the R to the E, the double G-I-E. And when I rock the mic, I rock viciously. You take the first letter R, it stands for rhyme. I rock the double deaf beat and the double deaf time. Take the second letter E, it stands for ease. I rock the best females and the dopest MCs. You take the double G, it may sound the whack. But when you put it together, I got it like that. Take the fifth letter off international, cause I'm known throughout the city by all the deaf girls. Take the last letter E, it stands for every, every sucker MC that tries to rhyme with me. Put it all together and you add the O, cause I'm 24 seven and I'm solid gold, huh? That was my high school rap. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah? Yeah. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's old school and it's, very, you know, rudimentary, but I love that rhyme. And I had more, but that's the only one that I remember spelling out my name.
And let me see if I can lay down again.